Welcome to the Replay Value Podcast, where we deep dive into the movies we all love to watch over and over again. I'm Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co-host on the West Coast, Warren. In this episode, we're going to talk about the most seen film in cinema history, America's first Replay Value classic, the family fantasy adventure musical, The Wizard of Oz. Now, the plot of this film, when a tornado rips through Kansas, Dorothy and her dog Toto are swept away in their house to the magical land of Oz. They follow the yellow brick road toward the Emerald City to meet the wizard. And on the way, they meet a scarecrow that needs a brain, a tin man missing a heart, and a cowardly lion who wants courage. The wizard requires the group to bring him the broom of the Wicked Witch of the West in order to grant the request. Like you mentioned, it is the first replay value film i don't really see how you beat this when it comes to a, a, a movie that can be watched over and over again and by so many different generations over a span of now 80 years we are doing this on the 80th anniversary of when this film was released of course based on the original works of l frank Baum, his book the wonderful wizard of oz uh, some significant differences uh, between the book and the film uh, that I found rather interesting. Some major ones, and they made this adjustment really because a lot of fantasy films hadn't been successful in Hollywood leading up to 1939, is they made it all a dream. Uh, narratively speaking, in the book, Oz is a real place, but in the film, it is all in Dorothy's mind when she's asleep. Probably a little bit more palatable for audiences to take in, or at least maybe that's what the studio thought. I do want to jump back quickly and discuss the book. It was released by, like you mentioned, Lyman Frank Baum back in 1900. And I was just trying to think about putting that into perspective. You know, I don't understand from my point of view what that would have meant when the movie was released in 1939. You have to think this was a beloved children's book and almost 40 years passed between the time of the book and the movie. So what could you kind of equate that to in today? And I, I kept jumping back to Lord of the Rings. You know, those books were written in the 1950s, and then you finally got the film theatrical version. It was forever put off because people didn't think that it could be done. They didn't think that you could deliver that type of fantasy on the big screen. It was very much the case with uh, with Baum's book. A lot of people didn't think it could be made. We run into that with a lot of different novels throughout the years but this is really when Hollywood started I mean keep in mind I mean you, you didn't really get talkies until what 10 years before this film so it, movies talkies really listen old. to this guy yeah talkies <laughs> well, you had silent films before that but sure. you know uh you of course to adapt the book would need it to have dialogue so that probably ruled it out for what the first uh, 10 or 15 years cinema was around after the book had been published but uh, some other differences the book had that I found interesting is instead of them being the ruby red slippers, they were silver slippers in the book. Not sure if that was done to take advantage of the technicolor aspect. You know, the ruby slippers maybe looked better on screen or against the the yellow brick road. The MGM directive was to make everything really bright, light colors, um, which is one of the reasons why the yellow brick road uh, was green at first, uh, they had to correct huh. that uh, uh, in, in subsequent re-releases. Um, 
Other differences, the book was darker, more violent. Uh, Oz was a real place. They were in real jeopardy. Uh, the Tin Man in one chapter of the book ends up decapitating 40 wolves. So a little bit more gruesome Ugh. in the film. <laughs> yeah. This is a children's book. I mean, God, some hot, some Hansel and Gretel shit right here. Early drafts from for the film, they kind of stepped away from the fantasy elements that you did find in the book because you mentioned they didn't think that they would sell. So it was kind of took the same principles but grounded them in realism. For example, the scarecrow, he didn't you know he didn't have a brain, so they spun it where he was too stupid to work any job except scaring crows away in a field. And the tin man was a criminal that was confined to a tin suit. It just a lot of stretches that draft didn't last very long, uh, but it was, it, it took quite the journey from the book. And as you mentioned, the changes that were made to the adaptation to what we now know as the beloved wizard of Oz. Yeah. One of which being the, the wicked witch of the West in the book, she's only in three chapters yet in the movie. She is the cause of, every single problem that Dorothy encounters in the land of Oz, uh, trying to find a way home. Uh, really what was interesting with the script and the evolution it took throughout the course of pre-production is it had 14 different writers and you had writers submitting multiple drafts, having not read the previous drafts, which is really unusual. Typically the writers given what's been done up to that point to try to improve it. That wasn't the case. They had multiple writers sitting in drafts trying to pick the best one. So you can kind of see Hollywood is still trying to figure out what they were doing and how they were going to make movies and mastering the process. If you look at the writing teams and how many people are credited, there's just as many that are uncredited. A, a common practice in Hollywood back in the time was you would have multiple teams of writers working on the same script, but they wouldn't know about it. Uh, they wouldn't you know, know about the other people working on it. And then the studio or the person in charge, a head writer in, in some cases, would take all of those drafts, mash them up, and kind of piece pick the the elements that they wanted to incorporate into the main story the writer that is mainly credited for that is yip harburg he is credited for uh, writing a good portion of the dialogue um, including the parts of the script where they give out the heart the brains and uh, you know the the climax of the film where they meet the wizard yeah which is real different from the book because in, in the book, the gifts are quite a bit different. The, the wizard, they're still bullshit. They're still fake. But the wizard goes to a lot more effort and is much more cunning in the book as opposed to the movie where he kind of, in some aspects, comes off like a car salesman. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but you know, the thing is, is that even though he comes off that way and it's kind of a you know play off of the earlier part of the movie where he's Professor Marvel and is... Yeah, he recovers nicely. He has some powerful good lessons that he teaches each one of them. That's the thing, though, is that you never... You don't feel like he's being cheap. You do feel like they're genuine gifts, and it's more like more so just teaching a lesson to the people. It's just like, here's... This is just a, a symbol of what you already have inside you. But you know, I digress. Five different directors worked on the film... Uh, the original director, Richard Thorpe, was fired after 12 days. Uh, George Kukar was brought on, filled in for three days, long enough to tell Judy Garland to lose the wig and the makeup. Then they brought in Victor Fleming, who is credited as the primary director. You, most of the film is his work. Um, but he had to leave uh, to go save another production that was in trouble, Gone with the Wind, another MGM picture uh, that was underway in filming. And King Vidor, I believe that's his name, uh, how you say it, uh, took over, uh, and he did some of the Munchkin scenes and the Kansas scenes uh, uh, with Dorothy on the farm. What's interesting about 
Kukor uh, is you know, he was the original director. Victor Fleming stepped in, did the the bulk of it, as you mentioned. But Kukor left because he had a commitment to direct Gone with the Wind, which he ended up leaving. So Victor Fleming could step in and finish up Gone with the Wind. Which So it's really weird that Fleming had such an impact and Kukor were both tied to, you know, clearly the biggest releases. That's of because of the studio system back then. The studios had all the power. They had directors and actors under contract as opposed to now where actors have agency representation that books them jobs with different studios and looks after their best interest. In a lot of ways, you know, actors would be tied up to a seven-year contract with MGM or Warners, and they would have to just make movies for that studio and have to do whatever they told them to do and play whoever they wow. told them to play. So that's one of those cases where they would just take directors they had on the payroll and just put them where they needed them or where they wanted them. You talked about that the true way to adapt this film is it had you had to wait till the era of talkies, as they were called. Uh, you couldn't do it as a silent film. Well, they did try to make a silent film version of The Wizard of Oz in 1925. Looking back, it's said to have been somewhat of a disappointment, but reviews were actually decent at the time. Uh, so just kind of interesting that that did come out 10 years, well, 15 years prior, but is long forgotten at this point. Well, and I think MGM also knew the potential once films had uh, sound. MGM paid 75000 for the film rights to the book from uh, L. Frank Baum, which, I mean, that is back in, back then, that's a shitload of money. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a boatload. The rights were owned by none other than Samuel Goldwyn, the G of MGM studios. If that kind of puts things into perspective about how long ago this was. Well, and one little cool nugget I came across is how Frank Baum did come up with the name Oz as he was sitting there writing the book and he looked up at a file cabinet in his office and he saw it alphabetized A to N and then O to Z. And he just took the O and the Z from the cabinet. And and that's how he came up with Oz. And the film is widely known for its use of Technicolor. Uh, Not the first movie, but the most prominent uh, up to this point, and it worked wonders in the film when you transition from Kansas to Oz, having the, the, the you know the, the screen just light up with all these bright colors. The film definitely would not have made the same impact had you put the Kansas sequences in color as well instead of that sepia tone. It gave you the impact of the dream sequence and the magic of the land of Oz without that changeover. So you could tell the difference between reality, yeah. And it was a six-month process they worked on. So, I mean, this took them a long time to perfect it. And as I said, they had to tweak the color of the the yellow brick road because it wasn't coming across yellow on screen. And get into some of the other production elements of the film. It did take six months, uh, as you stated, for the Technicolor uh, sequences and those shots. Not only that, but they were working six days a week, very, very long hours, sometimes as early as 4 a.m. to 7 p.m. through all the makeup and the lighting at the time to capture Technicolor, the technology just wasn't there. So these are very bright lights that are trying to emulate daylight. You have all these actors that are under tons of makeup. I can't even imagine the, 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 pain the painstaking that. effort that everyone went through. I mean, even when you look at the tornado sequence, uh, they had a 34, five foot long uh, stocking that was spinning around a miniature set of the Kansas farm set. So the effects, they really had to put a lot of effort uh, and, and, and just trial and error figuring out what worked on screen and one didn't. And when you look at the production, there was a lot of that. There are some horror stories on set. Some actors were unfortunately injured in the making of this film. Uh, 
you know, of course, it's rather well documented and, and, and known through the Hollywood uh, cautionary tales of Judy Garland and this MGM studio heads uh, having her on a, a steady stream of pills, diet pills to keep her weight down, uh, energy pills during the day to shoot the film, and then, of course, sleeping pills to go to sleep. And apparently they did this with a lot of child actors to control them and make sure that they were able to perform at a high level on a consistent basis, which is really unfortunate when you do the research on this film, learning that that was the condition she worked under. And you know, we, we do focus on the positive of great movies, but we, we do have to mention just how different the era was back then and, and some tr- other troubles they had during the making of the film. I, I just want to mention a couple brief ones. Uh, we can get into this more with the casting later, but the person originally cast as Tin Man, he had an adverse reaction to the aluminum powder, ended up going to critical care, lost his job over it, and someone else, um, you know, Jack Haley, ended up stepping in. Most notably, though, and most well-documented, I would say, is Margaret Hamilton as the Wicked Witch of the West. She, When she exits in Munchkinland, she, they took her down an elevator when the smoke and the, and the fire shoot off. First take went off without a hitch. Second take, the fire went off too early. She got bad third-degree burns on her hands and face. Ended up having to take three months off from shooting. Um, she came back and you, know, you would think nowadays if that were to happen, the studio would have a huge lawsuit on their hands. Well, she's actually went on record after the fact and said she had the option to sue, but she didn't want to because the way that the industry was back then, she wouldn't have been able to get a job. So she just kind of had to suck it up, went back to set, but did draw the line as far as I don't want to do this. I'm not going to risk my, uh, put myself at risk anymore. And Coincidentally enough, there was another scene where she had to ride on a broom and smoke was coming billowing out the back of it. They wanted her to do it. She refused. That said, absolutely not. And the uh, stand-in, Betty Danko, ended up doing it for her. And due to a malfunction with the smoke, she got severely injured as well. So just scarred her legs. Yeah, so just some bad stuff um, happened, and it just there was just the way there wasn't as much safety back then. It just part of part of the way the industry was. And the fake snow in the film was made from asbestos, which we know as a harmful substance nowadays. But back then, they did not know any better. Yeah, uh, they used copper-based paint for the witch, as we mentioned, aluminum powder for Tin Man. I mean foam latex for yeah. Scarecrow and Lion, which left permanent lines on their face. I mean the Special effects guys, they probably just doing the best with what they had, but there was no safety checks, and it was... The well, movies hadn't been made long enough for them to know what the effects of these things were, and they were still experimenting with the you know Tin Man makeup when, after uh, the first actor was cast, and he was rehearsing. So they were, they were just figuring it out as they went along, and of course now they've mastered the process that Hollywood can almost create anything on screen. And, 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 and have safety be the, the first priority. And that's mostly how the industry operates nowadays. They put industry, uh, they put this, you know, safety of the cast and crew first. Um, even Toto, the dog got stepped on. He was out of commission for, for a few weeks. So oh I mean, gosh. it seemed like everybody got hurt in this film. Yeah. yeah to, wow. To some extent, uh, the film shot from October 13th, 1938 to March 16th, 1939, plus a heavy reshoots through April and May. They could, could, were retooling the film up to the release. To shift into talking about the epic soundtrack of the film, we have to mention that. Of course, some just fantastic songs, most notably Over the Rainbow. But, believe it or not, there were several songs actually cut from the film. Yeah, they have almost 
too many good ones in the film as it is, so it's not hard to believe. Well, it was mainly to cut for time. Uh, they had to kind of help with the young crowd. They had a song called The Jitterbug. That got cut. Uh, a couple other like reprises of some previous songs in the finale got cut. So really all the songs are front loaded early on and towards the climax and end, you don't get any because the ones that were there were, were, were actually removed due to time constraints. Well, the main reason the running time being such a concern is the average film back in 1939 was 90 minutes. So any film over that was considered epically long, as we're nowadays, we look at, what, two and a half hours? I mean, I mean Avengers, Avengers Endgame. movie was three hours. Yeah. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's two hours and 40 minutes. And movies nowadays are much longer, but back then that wasn't the case. A couple of what ifs for the songs. Uh, if I only had a brain, you know, the Scarecrow's number there. It was originally meant to be a slower version, but they kind of threw an audible, wanted to make it more upbeat, which is a great choice. And Over the Rainbow was one of the songs that was almost cut for time, if you can believe it. The studio felt it was wow. demeaning. Yeah, the studio felt it was demeaning for Judy Garland to be singing in a barnyard. And uh, if it wasn't for the producer and the director of the film fighting to keep it in, it probably would have got cut by the studio. But they actually ended up winning that fight. And the most iconic song from the film, despite yeah. all the great hits, that is the, uh, the, one, the number one song you think about. And, and the most decorated and accomplished. And we'll shift to the stars of the picture Of course, starting with Judy Garland as Dorothy Gale, the protagonist of the story, and often overlooked, whose character is an orphan, which a lot of people really don't mention or think. When you think of Dorothy, you don't consider her an orphan. Uh, I mean, she's really close with her aunt and her uncle, it it appears, but uh, there's no mention of her parents in the movie, uh, and it appears that she does live with them. Judy Garland won the Oscar Juvenile Award. It was a pint-sized Oscar. She called it the Munchkin Award. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And she deserved it. She brought a lot of depth to this character. I mean, the circumstances were life and death. She had such a vulnerability and sadness in her performance. Uh, Just a beautiful work uh, by Judy Garland. Of course, her most definitive role of her career, despite the fact she would go on to be nominated for two Oscars, including one of the four editions of The Star is Born to be released, this one starring her being uh, released in 1954. It was between three people for this role. One was uh, Deanna Durbin, which I'm not familiar with who that is. She was a fairly newcomer at the time. And Shirley Temple, believe it or not, was in the running mm-hmm. for uh, Dorothy Gale, but it was due to some, I believe, some contractual or scheduling conflicts and given that Garland had uh, a lot of experience and a very uh, definitive voice, she was a proficient singer, she did end up winning out the role. Well, they tested Shirley Temple, and it, you know, being younger, but her voice had range, or excuse me, her voice was limited in range uh, compared to Judy Garland, and, and they really felt that the vocal range was needed for, for Dorothy uh, to sing some of the songs that, that, that she performs in the film. The main reason they wanted Shirley Temple is her appearance was more age-appropriate. The character's younger, uh, hasn't hit puberty in the film, and Judy Garland had. She was 16, going on 17 at the time. They had to put a corset on her to make her appear more you know, flat-chested and more boyish in, 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 her, in her body appearance. Hmm, okay. One interesting thing about Judy Garland, the day she passed away, there was a tornado in Kansas. Well, 
That is interesting. I would say that there are probably a lot of tornadoes in Kansas, though. But that that's kind of a cool little factoid. Just seems like she, it was her, in some way, her destiny or her fate to play Dorothy Gale in The Wizard mm. of Oz. And it's what she's most known for. And she'll go down in history and be remembered forever for playing this character. Hey, we're talking about a day to years later. So, of course, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Frank Morgan as the Wizard of Oz and also various other characters, Professor Marvel, the gatekeeper, the guard, uh, was a heavy, heavy drinker. I don't know if you noticed when watching the film, but there were some scenes where he was absolutely smashed. I, you know, when I was a kid, I just thought it was kind of part of his character, but I was look back and now I'm like, oh man, he's plastered. When he's at the when he's the guard at the door and he's leaning through the window, it's been reported that he would have fell down had he not had the door to lean on. <laughs> he was the, he was that drunk. Wow. I mean, it plays into the characters kind of morbid as that sounds that, you know, that little spice of the kind of, you know, drunkenness. It, it just kind of works for the the goofiness of that character in general. But that's kind of kind of sad at the same time, though. Uh, he was not the first choice for the wizard and those other roles. It was originally going to be going to W.C. Fields. Uh, the, the famous actor on stage, movies, vaudeville, but he was too expensive. They couldn't work out the details. So Frank Morgan was he one of... He didn't like how small the part was either. That's true. Frank Morgan was one of those... It was a situation, kind of how you talked about earlier, where the studios, they would have directors and actors in, like on contract. He was a contract player, uh, and so the studio just plucked him from the pool, popped him into this part. Ray Bolger as the Scarecrow... An ally, a tractor in, uh, in the story to the protagonist, Dorothy. Uh, his childhood idol played Scarecrow on stage in 1902, and that performance inspired him to want to be an actor. He was originally cast as Tin Man, but really pushed and advocated to be recast as Scarecrow. And uh, the original actor has, uh, agreed, and, and, and it, that was that. They swapped out. Well, to get a little more detailed into it, when you say pushed he more complained and said he was a better fit for the part as scarecrow and it's mainly because his child uh, childhood idol fred stone he wanted to play that same part fortunately the original actor for tin man as we mentioned earlier buddy ebsen was fine with it he was uh, you know a very experienced stage actor he swapped out and at that point when they did the swap he um he was actually, they were already recording the soundtrack for the film. So he is on the original soundtrack singing the parts as the Tin Man. But even though he was eventually replaced by Jack Cayley, um, what's what I find kind of sad about the story. It was the song where it was off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. Yeah, yeah that's correct. Yes. But what, what I find kind of sad about the story is Buddy Epson, you know, he was very, you know, very willing to let. Bolger come in for the greater good. He taught Bolger the walk of the scarecrow and kind of helped him step into that role. He went to the Tin Man, but then had that instance with the aluminum powder, went in critical condition and had to step away from the film. Had he not swapped roles with Ray Bolger, he would have had a part in this epic this epic masterpiece that is timeless. But due to that change and then the issue with the makeup, he is barely a, a mention. He's more than a footnote. Or a crazy what if situation uh, had Ray Bolger been refused his request and left to play Tin Man. Burt Lair as the Cowardly Lion 
one of my favorite performances, certainly growing up, he I, I, he was the funniest. I laughed at him the most, and mm, he's yeah. got some great moments in this movie. Uh, brilliant comical relief for the film and in, in, in moments where it really needs it. Uh, the makeup he had as the lion included a brown paper bag, so he couldn't actually eat when he was in makeup. It would ruin his makeup. So he, these actors and these people, you know, Overall, in the cast and crew suffered a lot for their art. Jack Haley as Tin Man, another ally, attractor to the protagonist. He actually got an eye infection after he replaced Epstein, uh, despite the change they made to the Tin Man makeup. Same costume issue as C-3PO. Uh, the costume was so stiff, uh, he would have to rest leaning against a wooden board. Oh, well, but they had a can of oil, though, to help him, though, right? Maybe the character I'm sorry. On screen. I don't think that's going to help out the actor on set. No, they actually did try to the the kind of the brown rustiness that they look was chocolate syrup on the costume, which I found was kind of cool. There's some things they did when you look at it, it was pretty clever and, and inventive for the time. I mean, there was just they were like I said, they were just inventing it as they went along in some cases, and they made some mistakes. Of course, we mentioned those uh, in the last segment, but in some cases, they really came through uh, in the clutch and did a great job. And we've saved, in this case, the best for last, Margaret Hamilton as the Wicked Witch of the West, who, after a long deliberation, is my MVP. It was between the Cowardly Lion, Dorothy, and Margaret Hamilton. But you got to go with Margaret Hamilton as the witch. It's the most iconic performance from the film. Probably, you know, villains benefit uh, if they're written and performed well to, to being a centerpiece and stage stealing or scene stealers in the film like the Joker with Batman very much so with the Wicked Witch of the West when she shows up all eyes are on her uh, Margaret Hamilton nails it the laugh so iconic the voice I mean the, the line readings how she raises her voice and inflects it uh, the gestures with her hands the physicality the performance one of the most influential villain performances of all time. So many actors who've had to play villains uh, have no doubt stolen from her and incorporated elements from her performance into their own. A great choice. I do love that. She does a lot with the little. If you actually go back and watch the film, she is not on scene. She's not, shouldn't have very many scenes, but she steals all of them that she's in, uh, obviously. Now, mm-hmm. the original actress cast for Miss Gulch, the Wicked Witch of the West, was Gail Sondergaard, but she stepped away because she thought the role was going to be a more sly and glamorous type of witch. And mm-hmm. when she saw it was just kind of more the, the ugly hag, she said she didn't want to do it. So Margaret Hamilton, another contract player from the studio, not only was she your MVP, but she stepped into this role three days before filming started. So didn't have a lot Which of time... Is- just so impressive when you look at how strong her handle is on the character uh, from every scene she's in. Played a similar character, though, in the 1939 Judy Garland film Babes in Arms. So perhaps that performance helped her with this. Came out the same year, oddly yeah, enough. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy that she had a similar role. And I guess whenever you are that role, you're automatically going to be associated with it like Nurse Hatchet from One Flew mm-hmm. Over the Cuckoo's Nest, it's just who you are after 
something that iconic. So a worthy MVP. Great choice. It, yeah, and like the hat, her nose, the makeup, I mean, all of that is so iconic. When you think of a witch, I mean, you look at even the Halloween costumes that aren't the Wizard of Oz witch, they rip off the that same costume. The hat, I mean, all that comes the green from skin. the Wicked yeah, Witch is of the West. Yeah. Absolutely the definitive witch look, definitely. We'll move on to the stats and accolades of the Wizard of Oz. 80th anniversary here in 2019, previewed August 11th, 1939, Hollywood premiere August 15th, 1939, but its release date to the world August 25th, 1939, on a budget of $2.7 million, most expensive movie made at the time. That was a astronomical sum of money to be spending on a film. So expensive, in fact, that they did not expect to recuperate that uh, a profit from the film uh, tickets back then the average the nationwide average for a movie ticket was 25 cents so that would have been a lot of ticket sales to get back that much money in fact they did not turn a profit on the film until its re-release in 1949 speaking of re-releases this movie has had 10 theatrical releases including the initial one and then one earlier this year for the uh, 80th anniversary uh, celebration and one of those releases was a 3d imax version in 2013 god i wish i would have gone to that I'm yeah that would have been great yeah stupid moron oh, such an idiot although i i don't know how that would have translated a film from the from 1939 it's the oldest film 3D. ever converted to 3d yeah <laughs> that's just crazy Ugh. yeah opening weekend mixed reports some did not have any numbers available imdb has 1.2 million, which I typically mm. don't use for that information, but I was scouring for some opening weekend number, and that's all I could come up with. Uh, U.S. gross $24.7 million, which made up 96.2% of the box office gross on the initial run, only 969,000 foreign market grosses for a total of $25.7 million. This is a little bit different than the other movies that we've covered as far as what would that mean in today's dollars, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's just because it didn't make a whole lot of money and the records weren't tracked as well as they are today. Just didn't keep accurate records back then. I mean, the the MPAA didn't even rate this movie G until 1970, which is one of the re-releases. Now, I will say that the theatrical re-release in 1955, that was when it truly made an impact. At that point, Judy Garland was an international star. They put it in theaters, and then the following year in 1956 is when CBS aired it on television for the first time to an audience of 45 million people. At that point, it became a cult phenomenon and was beloved by generations uh, over time. Well, it was still critically beloved and was nominated for six Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, ultimately winning two for Best Score and Best Song for Over the Rainbow, uh, sung by Judy Garland. Uh, another seven wins and eight nominations, just not a lot of award associations back then. Um, scores of the film, IMDb, 8.0, Rotten Tomatoes, 98%, Metacritic, 100 and no cinema score I couldn't find. Um, and that's the case with this film. It just predates a lot of <laughs> some of these, these sources. Um, critics, universal acclaim. They loved the film. Uh, Ebert, four stars, dubbed it one of his great films. 
and said, quote, The Wizard of Oz has a wonderful surface of comedy and music, special effects, and excitement. But we still watch it six decades later because its underlying story penetrates straight to the deepest insecurities of childhood, stirs them, and then reassures them, unquote. Ebert's review came out six decades later. I mean, at that point, it's already a timeless classic. All of the metrics and measurements, they might as well be 100% because to stand the test of the time the way that it has, that's the true measure. And it doesn't matter what the score is after that. Other movies of the year, Stagecoach, directed by John Ford, starring John Wayne. Wow. Uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, starring Jimmy Stewart. Of Mice and Men, mm, and of course, wow. the Best Picture winner, Gone with the Wind. Eight Oscar wins, 13 nods, a, uh, also a treasure of American cinema. Absolutely insane that both of these films came out in the same year. TV shows of the year, well, uh, American television really didn't blossom <laughs> until after World War II. Uh, there was no top-rated TV show. Nielsen ratings didn't have any ratings until 1950 television didn't become common in America until the 1950s. Uh, British television was quite popular before world war II, but even they shut down their television production for six years until 1946. So really nothing to report on the TV side. Uh, Emmys didn't hold their first year of ceremony until 1949. Wow. So this predates uh, anything we could talk about on television. It's amazing, really, the Oscars was the only way to appreciate movies after they were in theaters because there was no VHS and DVD, Blu-ray, obviously. So once a movie left the theaters, that was it. You wouldn't see it on television. You, The only reason that Wizard of Oz got re-releases is because audiences were clamoring for it. Typically, that did not happen. Uh, so this was very much a an outlier, a special movie in many ways for, for what it was at the time. For the fact that it's resonated this long. I mean, TV was invented in 1927, but series and television series, that didn't really start to happen until, as we're talking about it, until after World War II. Uh, in fact, the first television ad didn't air until 1941, which was two years after this movie came hmm. out. Yeah. Um, 1939 songs, number one song of the year, Over the Rainbow, from this movie by Judy Garland. Big huh. surprise. So Oscar winner and the number one song. Billboard rankings weren't out yet, but it still was considered the number one song. And no Grammys. Grammys uh, didn't hold their first year until 1959. Major events and prices of 1939. A new house cost $3,800. A new car cost $700. To rent a place cost $28. A gallon of gas was $0.10. Cents. Whew, man. Bring back the good days. No, please don't. I mean, I need a sports I'd rather... almanac. That's what I need. <laughs> yeah, sports almanac. Nice. Events uh, of 1939, the Chilean earthquake. France ha held its last public execution. Wow. Christ. I can't believe that was still going on then. That's, Man. that's pretty medieval. Um, the start of World War II, Germany invades Poland. Uh, the U.S. launches the Manhattan Project. And Hewitt Packard is created as a company. All right. Best scenes and lines of the film. We can't say the phrase enough. It's a timeless classic. There's a lot of timeless classic scenes and lines, quotes, what have you, from the movie. Let's jump into it. What were your honorable mentions for best scene? Well, a, a lot of great scenes. The movie flows so well. Um, we mentioned the, the, 
the score and, and, and the songs from the film, it's such a brilliant musical and all the songs work. They had so many great ones. They had to cut some out of the film. So uh, my honorable mentions uh, are going to be the songs from the movie, uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, uh, when she's at the farm singing before she is swept up in the tornado. Sure. Uh, and then you get the, the Munchkins, you know, the Lollipop Guild and, um, uh, you know, the wonderful Wizard of Oz, which is sung five times in the movie. Oh, we're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. Here he is, the wizard of Oz, if ever a wizard was. If ever, oh, ever a wizard was, the wizard of Oz was one because, 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 because of the wonderful things he does. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. As, like, as a whole, is that all the songs are kind of one honorable mention or individually? Well, yeah, or? Well, yeah just, uh, I'm just kind of going through the honorable mentions here. Uh, if I Only Had a Brain and If I Only Had a Heart, uh, everyone loves those. Those really set up the movie and, and get the film-building momentum where you're really interested to go on this journey with these characters and see where they uh, end up. And my last honorable mention is uh, when they go to save Dorothy and you have the... Oh. That's good. Yeah, that that was actually one of my honorable mentions as well. It's uh, one that has been, uh, I would say, parodied in pop culture. Uh, most notably, I, I think of Wreck-It Ralph when you know they're in Sugar Rush, a candy kingdom, and the guards are Oreo cookies. So they're saying Oreo, Oreo, and they're walking in the same way. Just kind of a funny uh, play on words. Uh, so that's a great honorable mention choice. Did you have any others? Nope. What are yours? Um, that one, when they disguise themselves to infiltrate the uh, Wicked Witch's you know, castle and whatnot. Uh, I would also have to say the makeover sequence whenever they first get to the Emerald City and they have like this wash and brush company just so conveniently there with extra straw for the scarecrow and, you know, polish wheels for to buff out the, the, the tin, tin man. Yeah. And, you know, they all get there and they've gone through this long journey, the you know, poppy field incident. And, and they're they giving all, a manicure and a pedicure to Dorothy and all that. Yeah. I just like the way they do it and kind of the sing-along way that they uh, they they go about that. Uh, and then my final honorable mention also takes place at the Emerald City shortly thereafter. And it's the number with the lion when he's talking about being the king of the forest which doesn't make any sense for a lion to be king of the forest, but his performance and the way he sings it and how they just break off like a pot as like his crown and they pick up the, they just use the props there. And it's this kind of regal make-believe moment for him being the king. And I always got a kick out of that as a kid. I always loved it. Mm, yeah. Excellent. I love all the scenes in this movie. I mean, it's it's a cherished childhood favorite of mine. I, there's no scene that I dislike. There's just some that I like more than others. Getting to the runner-up is Lions, Tigers, and Bears, oh my. Lions? And Tigers? And Bears. <laughs> Lions and Tigers and Bears, oh my. Lions and Tigers and Bears, oh my. But it's the introduction to the Cowardly Lion. I just love how he puts on such a front and he's so tough. Put him up, put him up. Which one are you faced? I'll fight you both together if you want. I'll fight you with one paw tied behind my back. And then Dorothy just shakes that shit out real quick and puts him in his place. Shame on you. Look, what did you do that for? 
I didn't buy them. No, but you tried to. It's bad enough picking on a straw man, but when you go around picking on poor little dogs... Well, you didn't have to go and hit me, did you? Shakes that shit out real quick. She does, uh, man. She Dorothy keeps it real throughout the movie. Uh, she really puts... You should be ashamed of yourself. Like, she is such a... The, she's the moral compass uh, of the film and and uh, always takes the high moral ground and, and always means well and does the right thing. And she calls people out when she sees them not doing that. Uh, but then the cowardly line, like, breaks down and starts crying. It's hilarious. I mean, I was laughing even when I watched it uh, in, in prepping for this episode. So, gotta and I, cowardly line was my favorite character uh, growing up. So have to say that's that's my runner-up scene is when we when we get to meet the cowardly lion i like that that's a good choice uh then then dorothy turns very quickly and after she you know calls him out on his shit or however you said it uh she is like hey we should take him with us to go see the wizard so she is quick to help him as as well so yeah i love the introduction of all of the characters but the cowardly lion one is great and kind of plays back clearly to earlier in the film when Zeke saves her when she falls in the the pig pen but then you that everybody quickly discovers that he was very scared to do that he stepped up mm-hmm. and showed courage but um that is uh, that's kind of a a, a callback to that and uh, and in the book, he's even more courageous. Uh, he does even more courageous things uh, in the book and puts himself at risk to help Dorothy and the others. And after all, isn't that what courage is? It's not doing something brave when you're not scared. It's doing it when you are. So uh, anyway, I do like that choice. Very good. My runner up was the reveal of the real Oz. Do you presume to criticize the great Oz? You ungrateful creatures. Think yourselves lucky that I'm giving you audience tomorrow instead of 20 years from now. Oh. The great Oz has spoken. Oh. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great Oz has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful wizard of Oz. I love Frank Morgan's reaction. He's just like, uh, you know, just freaking like tries to close it. You know, pay pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. That's that's my winner. Oh man, really? Yeah. Well, you know the old expression. Did we just become best friends? Nope. I love that. That's great. Very good choice for your favorite. I I I, I have one that's I have to put a little bit above that though, and I. Honestly, I don't know why you didn't mention it as an honorable mention if you didn't have it higher, but you have to choose the first introduction to Oz. When you shift from the sepia-toned black and white, Dorothy opens the door into the Technicolor land of Oz. That that moment is just so magical. When that changeover happens, that's got to be my winner. You're a sucker for opening scenes, man. Well, it's an opening scene. I mean, it's an opening, opening scene. scene of the world, though. It's, it's yeah. your first. You're a sucker for first impressions. That's probably a better way to put it. it, it you, that's a fair point. But there is a cool story behind that. So that scene was not originally shot, or if it was, it didn't work. So they had to re- come back and reshoot it. And the way that to do the sepia tone black and white was very expensive back then so what they did is they painted the house and the room that she was in they painted it sepia tone they had her dress and her makeup everything was sepia tone so it it's actually being shot 
in color, but it doesn't have the sepia tone on the film. That was a paint effect. So when they shift over to go to the Land of Oz, whenever you see that last shot of Dorothy as the sepia black and white Dorothy, that is her stand-in that's actually in the film. She steps off camera, and then as they go up to the door to open it, uh, Judy Garland steps in wearing the blue dress and whatnot and opens the door, and that's where you see the color. So the changeover... Uh, I guess it actually was shot in complete color, but everything was painted sepia. And then they had a, kind of a camera trick between Judy Garland and her extra to step off because it's one long continuous shot. If you, if you watch the film, wow, closely. the level of craftsmanship they put into yeah. that is, is pretty cool. And that was done on a reshoot. That wasn't all, that was almost not even in the film. I see why you picked an excellent scene and sets the tone and gets us hooked on this adventure with Dorothy. And we want to see where she ends up. All right, best lines of the film. We'll uh, start back with you, honorable mentions. What'd you have? Uh, honorable mentions. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. One of the most quotable, you, you have to mention it. it. It is one of the most quotable, and it is one that is most often misquoted. A lot of people say, uh, I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore, and uh, looks like we're not in Kansas anymore. It, it, the actual line is, I've... A feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Not mm-hmm. I have, I've. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. So, um, great line. I know. Okay, it- Aaron Sorkin. I said <laughs> I have instead of I've. What are we doing here? A teleplay? Come on. No, 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 uh, no. I only, I only say that and correct you because that was my winner line. That's my favorite of the film. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I pick it because of the high usage rate. And another reason I feel yeah. that this movie is has such a high replay value is the usage rate of the lines and the, it's very quotable. Mm-hmm. Uh, another honorable mention from the Wicked Witch of the West. But just try to stay out of my way. Just try. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she does the laugh. That's great. Um, so I have to mention that. And the witch has some of the best lines in the movie, and that was oh, yeah. one of them. And best delivery, too, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And my last honorable mention is There's No Place Like Home, mm, which yeah. is also iconic. Iconic. Got to mention that one. Uh, one honorable mention I did have is uh, one that just, there's a lot of great lessons in the film, even to this day. It's crazy how you can take something 80 years later from a movie and the lesson still sticks. And that was the, the line from The Wizard to Tin Man. That a heart is not judged by how much you love but by how much you are loved by others. It's a great lesson there. Kind of hits close to home. So I, uh, I, I really have always, always liked that line. I didn't have it higher, but I did want to mention it as an honorable mention. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what was your runner-up line? Uh, runner-up, since we've already said my winner, is another line that has a deeper meaning, and it's when Dorothy learns the lesson uh, of why she's been in Oz and why she really wants to go home. If I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard. Because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. Yeah, one of the quotes that is a lesson in the film, and The Wizard of Oz has a handful of ones as well at the end of the film when he's handing out gifts to everybody. So uh, a lot of inspirational, uh, moving things that are said by characters in the in the movie. It's why it's, so, it's such a powerful film for children. And uh, excellent choice there. 
What was your runner-up? My runner-up, another line by the witch, is when she's dying. I'm melting! I'm melting! Ah! What a world, what a world. I'm melting! Melting! Oh, what a world, what a world. Who would have thought a good little girl like you could destroy my beautiful wickedness? Ah! <laughs> it's such an iconic death scene. I mean, how many times has that been parodied or ripped off in some fashion? Man, Dorothy, the man, she's a great accidental killer of witches. I mean, two for two. One of the best hitman ever. Yeah, yeah. use uh, accidentally with the house, then accidentally with water. Good God. I mean, why are you going to leave a bucket of water sitting around though if you're so you know uh, vulnerable to it? Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like your kryptonite. Now my winner, and it's tied in with my favorite scene, and and you said it earlier. It's by the Wizard of Oz when Toto opens the curtain. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. <laughs> I, I almost actually did have that. Uh, <laughs> almost have that higher, but because I included it in my one of my favorite scenes, I I kind of pulled it from uh, my favorite line just because it was a little bit of a crossover, but I'm not going to knock you for that choice. I freaking love that line. I love that entire moment. Yeah, my favorite of the movie, and right when I heard it, I knew it was the winner. All right, let's recast the film with today's stars. 80 years after the fact, going to be quite a changeover uh, from you know the originals to these. And Warren, I don't think you have to worry about me trying to recast the same actors in this one again like you have in the past. So <laughs> let's start with... The Wizard, a.k.a. Professor Marvel, who did you have? I thought of a couple different actors, but settled on Jim Broadbent from Moulin Rouge. Jim Broadbent. That's, I like that. Yeah. Um, my choice for The Wizard, and, and I really think about the comedic elements, him playing multiple roles, almost being a, a little bit of a comic relief. Uh, once I thought of this actor, I couldn't think of anyone else. John C. Riley. Yeah, he'd be great. Oh, come uh, on. Actor man. capable yes. of comedy and drama. He, he would. Uh, Hell yeah. He would he nail would be it. Very entertaining in the part. I would love to see what he would do. Moving on to Glinda, the good witch. Who was your choice? Uma Thurman. Uma Thurman. I like that. Yeah. I thought of Reese Witherspoon, kind of a similar role. But then I was thinking, I mean, who could play that? The who would have the. Um, I don't want to say pompousness, but just that kind of air of respect that Glinda the Good Witch has when she shows up and just everyone almost without bowing to her bows to her. They just, she knows all. She is very powerful. Meryl Streep, come on. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's almost like she does 20,000 pound weights as an actor. You're asking her to lift a 25 pound weight off a dumbbell. I mean, that's just all the parts yeah. almost too easy for her. Uh, every part's almost too easy for her, but yeah, I can actually, ever. yeah, I can actually visualize her in the movie playing that part with like some of the, the, the flourishes and uh, the, the smiles and whatnot. But oddly enough, I could also see her as the Wicked Witch of the West. I could see her in both parts. I would actually put her more in the Wicked Witch because you need a big-time performer. I almost did. Yeah, Yeah. I almost did. So uh, let's go ahead and actually get into that. I ended up choosing for my Wicked Witch of the West, uh, Kate Blanchett. Kind of pulled from... Also picked Kate Blanchett. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, wow. Nice. I did not think we were going to match up at all. What? Did we just become best friends? Yep. I thought of Kate Blanchett for The Good Witch at first uh, because I, I thought she I had could that see that as well. Yeah. Like Lord of the Rings, like having yes. that same quality. Yeah. But shifted it to The Wicked Witch of the West. I feel like you need a big time actress that has gravitas that can play anything, and that's Kate Blanchett. I mean, she's played Lady Galadriel from Lord of the Rings, and then she played uh, Hela from Thor Ragnarok. So you kind of do have both sides of it. And the character's also Miss Gulch, too. Remind, so there's a little part where she's not a witch, too. So. True. So, the, and again, I'm sure you'll agree with me when we say that we could flip Kate Blanchett and Meryl Streep as well as... Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, as well as Uma Thurman. You almost see Uma Thurman as the, the Wicked Witch, too. It means you have to have an actress that could play both sides. So, uh, love that. And I did think of Jennifer Jason Lee, but I settled on Kate Blanchett. Yeah, I, I kind of threw out Nicole Kidman out there for the Wicked Witch. It, was, it just, Kate Blanchett felt like they were the right Nicole picks. Kidman would have been the Good Witch, for sure. I, again, I could see him as both. I could yeah. see him as both. They're just great actresses. All right, so let's get into the uh, Companions of Dorothy. Starting no, 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 you got to go to A&M. Oh, I, okay. I actually did not cast her. All right. Well, I casted two of Dorothy's family members, Aunt Em and Uncle Henry. Oh, you casted uh, them both? Really? Yes. It's not yes. in the movie I, I, a whole They spoke lot, to me. They spoke to me, though. I knew who I wanted in them, and so I, I just put it down. Uh, okay. Aunt Em, I put Francis McDormand. All right. Yep. That's a... Okay. Great choice. And Uncle Henry, I went with Richard Jenkins from Shape of Water most recently. Yeah, he played the uh, next door neighbor, right? Yep, yep, yeah. yep. Okay, sure, 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 sure. Okay, some, yeah, I some mean. quick ones we're going to throw out there. No, no, those are great choices. I like that. I didn't, honestly didn't think to cast them because they're kind of small roles, but I could clearly see them in, in those parts. Uh, all right, so moving into Dorothy's Companions, the Cowardly Lion, a.k.a. Zeke, the farmhand. Uh, I'll, I'll kick us off with this one. Think you're gonna like my choice for the Cowardly Lion, David Harbor. <laughs> that's great. Can you not see that? Come yes, on. Yes, yeah, that's that. He would be awesome. Um, wish I'd have thought of him. Actually, I actually got to credit my wife Kim to that one. Yeah. She said it, and I was like, "No, you." Now I have to pick him because it's such a perfect choice. <laughs> it is. It is. I thought of Seth Rogen, but I went with Jack Black. <laughs> I, I, again, because of the singing, he would. Cowardly Lion has to hit some notes in a couple scenes, and Jack Black could do that. Not only that, but Jack Black has those that theatrical physicality as far as to his movement. So think about the scene when they first meet the wizard, and he runs down the hallway and jumps out of the glass. I mean, that's got yeah. Jack Black written all over Absolutely. it. Absolutely, and even the scenes where he breaks down and he's vulnerable and terrified. Like, but Jack Black could do that in his sleep. Uh, so play oh. a lot of characters similar to that. I think he'd be perfect. In Good it. choice, and he can sing. He's got a lot of yeah. musical chops yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, the Tin Man, aka Hickory, the farmhand. This was tough. Um, I had someone here, and I moved him over to the Scarecrow, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, But I wanted someone that is a performer, could sing, could dance. Hugh Jackman. Okay. As a Tin Man? Yes. I mean, Tin dude. Man's kind of a whiner uh, at no. times. I don't, uh, Jackman's kind of a badass. Again, like you cast yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal as a pussy. I just don't see it. Jackman's too capable. Yeah, no, I T- mean. T- Tin Man wouldn't need help. He wouldn't need Dorothy. He wouldn't need the Cowardly Lion. He would be doing that shit on his own. It's just because you look, you're used to him as Wolverine, but 
he has the he has that Broadway that stage your background. Oh, he does. He yeah, just he, did a show here at the Bowl, a Hollywood Bowl, a one man musical show. So he's got the he's got the musical chops for sure. I mean, he might he might be his build might be a little too much for Tin Man. They may have to like you know CGI his face onto a skinny, tall, lanky person. Oh boy, like we're the agent actors. Now we're going to start changing their body. No, I'm types. kidding. Oh, I'm kidding. I'm just saying as far as the he could he could play the role. I mean, yeah, he yeah, he yeah, could yeah, Christian yeah. Bale that okay, shit and okay. make his body fit it. Yeah, agree to disagree. Don't really like the, like him. Whatever. For it. Don't think he's right. Don't think he's the right type. Whatever. But I went more of a comedian, comedic route because I really feel like that's the purpose of those characters. The story is darker. I feel like they would honor the book more and make it a darker story today, which would be more acceptable. So you would need brilliant comedic performances in the supporting roles to add that comedic touch. Uh, to make the film even more enjoyable. Uh, my Tin Man, Hickory, I th- man, 15, 20 years ago, Robin fucking Williams would have been perfect. Oh, Holy shit. He could have done any of the parts. Scarecrow, Tin Man, the the wi- the wizard, Cowardly Lion. He could have done it all. He could have done Dorothy. Shit. Maybe you just have him play everybody, you know, like uh, the Eddie Murphy <laughs> movies or something. Do an animated uh, version. Professor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I went with Steve Carell. Um, hmm. He doesn't. The Tin Man doesn't sing a lot in the movie. It's more he's joining in in in, in cadence with other singers. So he it's the Cowardly Lion who's the one of the three that really has to 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 have some some chops. Steve Carell, man, I don't know. I mean, Steve Carell's a great actor. He's got a lot of range, but I I don't know if he's he done stuff on the stage. Can he dance? Because the Tin Man do, did have to dance. I mean, it might be different I mean, to, today, they're but not, they're not doing. I mean, it's not any high level stuff. I'm sure he could pick it up. All right. Well, yeah, I, I would I would say that we, both of our choices for Tin Man were were not the best. But it's not, it's not the easiest movie to recast. It really okay, isn't. Let's it's move tough. Move on to the Scarecrow quote. The hunk. I thought of Billy Eichner. Yeah. For a minute. Sure. I really did. Uh, but I went with Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. Huh. Okay. Because um, this movie is iconic, and they. I've tended to go with the bigger stars. Bigger stars would want to be in this movie, and they would push to be in it. Yeah. Uh, I went with a different direction on that. I do like Jim Carrey. He could he has the range, drama, you know, singing, dancing, you know, the theatrical elements of it to, 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 to sell the part, the lanky, the kind of the gate, the goofiness of that, sure. Um, I ended up picking Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yeah, he'd be great, and he's well-suited for this kind of material. I mean, they even threw him in the Mary Poppins movie. If you're doing a musical film, you should consider if he's going to fit one of the parts, and if he does, you throw him in it. I actually had him as Tin Man originally, and I moved him to Scarecrow. Yeah, I moved him. Okay. Yeah. So, finally, number one on the call sheet, the lead character of The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy Gale. Who did you have? <laughs> I thought of it instantaneously and didn't, didn't look at anyone else. Millie Bobby Brown. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I don't think she's got the range uh, really to do it. I don't really like her for it. I mean, she's age appropriate uh, and, 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 and star walk power for her age. She's certainly one of the actresses you would consider uh, for the part. And, and Haley Steinfeld, who's been our perennial go-to for since we've launched this podcast for young actresses playing someone under 18. You thought of her, of course, but... I went with the actress from Moana, Ali Cravalho. That is a great choice. I love that man. She because she can sing. She's got a yeah. She can. She's, she, a, she's a stud. 
And she has that innocence to play Dorothy that you really need as well, that vulnerability, but also the, the power ballad voice. That's, man, that's good. I, I, I think either one of those actresses would be great. I think Millie Bobby Brown would do the work needed. I don't, I've never heard her sing, which would be a big part of nailing nah, you have somewhere to cast over the a singer for Dorothy. You might be able to get by with a Tin Man or the Lion, uh, but you have, Dorothy's got to be a singer. I, yeah, I mean, they could get someone else to say, hey, if they can make Emma Watson sound good in Beauty and well, the Beast, you know, they could I make mean, Rami, Millie. Yeah, Rami Malik did win the Oscar and he didn't do any of the singing. So maybe you could if uh, with the, the, the right uh, It would be a different movie, but Ollie Carvalho, if you were, if you were with Time Machine her back to 1939, she'd freaking crush it. Yeah, I mean, she yeah. could just step in. She could do, do that shit live. Yeah, she is that, yeah, a stage performance of it. Man, yeah, she'd be, be good in any capacity. All right. Fan theory time, and we all know where I was going with this one when we when you saw that it was Wizard of Oz for this episode. You got to talk about Dark Side of the Rainbow, man. Come on. Mm. So yeah, of course for, the psychedelic for, appeal of the film, <clears throat> the Dark Side of Oz. So for the uninitiated, roll up a fat doobie, light it up, and what you're supposed to do apparently. And I would be lying if I said I hadn't done this one, two, or a dozen times. But you take Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon album, you hit play on The Wizard of Oz. And when the MGM logo pops up on the third lion roar, you hit play on the CD. And then you turn the music down on the movie. And apparently, and maybe if you're more inebriated, the movie will match up lyrically and in some of the spots as far as the changeovers to the music itself with the album. Pink Floyd has gone on the record saying that this was unintentional, that, that it's just hogwash, that, that didn't happen, but uh, it has persisted through uh, 25 years now. It was first talked about in 1995. Uh, then the internet kind of grew it into a cult phenomenon to the point to where back in July of 2000, Turner Classic Movies aired Wizard of Oz and then the SAP channel could be turned on to play the movie synced up with it. So it is a cultural phenomenon. Like it or not, believe it or not, people have bought into it. So the fan theory is that it was intentional? Well, the fan theory is, yes, that it was intentional. That and that you It can actually, wasn't. A yeah, lot I'm, of songs match up with stuff. I, I don't buy it. No, that's the thing is if you, to a point, I will say that you can listen to any song with and watch a movie or a TV show and you're gonna your mind is going to try that's what people's brains do is they try to find patterns and you will try to find those matchups but it, if you've never done it you should there are some really cool moments like um, the song The Great Gig in the Sky where it's like a woman screaming and it sounds tumultuous matches up perfectly to the tornado scene and then it stops when the house lands and the song Money by Pink Floyd starts with the cash register chinging and the cool bass line as soon as she opens the door and goes to Oz in the color. So there are a lot of really cool things that match up. There's websites that have covered it. Even if you don't believe it, I highly encourage you just check it out sometime. It's very easy to do now that everything's digital. Uh, it's worth worth the entertainment value. They probably have a video on YouTube or someone already matched it up for you. You can just pull it up and oh, watch it. They they do. Yeah, I showed it to my wife for the first time and she kind of thought it was bullshit, but she sat down there for 20, a good solid 20 minutes and was just like, kind of like, whoa, that's kind of cool. Yeah, so, it, uh, yeah. That's, yeah. Pretty neat. Uh, we'll close out the episode talking about the legacy of The Wizard of Oz. This is widely considered one of the greatest films in cinema history. 
the Library of Congress uh, has released a study saying it is the most watched movie in film history. No movie has been watched by more people as many times as The Wizard of Oz. So fittingly, we are doing this film on the Replay Value podcast. Uh, a lot of iconic elements in the film. You, of course, the red slippers, uh, the yellow brick road. Uh, now, Dorothy's slippers are actually at the Smithsonian Institute. Uh, uh, the visuals, we talked about the witch, how iconic her costume and her, her performance was. I mean, even the Oz itself, the Emerald City, uh, the witch's castle, it's all very iconic and influential, and you can see its impact in various other uh, mediums and, and influences. In fact, and this might have something to do with how old the movie is, it has been referenced and spoofed and over 3,760 movies and TV shows. Nearly 4,000 different productions have referenced this film in some way. How is that even possible? Oh, my gosh. Pinocchio, Alice in Wonderland, Jack and the Beanstalk, Robin Hood, Star Wars, Beetlejuice, Spaceballs, Evil Dead 2, Roger Rabbit, Hot Shots, Simpsons, Snow White, SNL, Booze and Buddies, Mark, Mork and Mindy, and Pee Wee, uh, just to name a handful, or a couple handfuls. Wow. Oh, geez. Uh, the influence of this movie actually really, I would say goes back to uh, partially goes back to the book itself and that impact that it had on the generations that were ready for the movie. I mean, think about if there was a book series or a book out there that you had been reading for and your kids have been reading for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, uh, how much would you be looking forward to it? becoming a movie and then for them to nail it in the way they did that is the biggest impact because it has had such a influence on you know our parents our parents parents our parents 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 I mean it goes back very few movies impact as many generations uh as this film has in fact I don't think any film rivals it uh, it is among the first 25 films inaugurated into the National Film Registry in 1989. Also, one of just several films on the UNESCO's Memory of the World Registry. Oh, really? Wow. Very few films are referenced or on that list. So Wizard of Oz is deeply tied into the culture and our existence and will forever be remembered. And when we were getting ready to record this episode, I was actually talking to our mom about this and telling her that, hey, we're doing Wizard of Oz. And she's just like, oh, man, I, I remember when I was a kid and every year it would air on television and it was such an event for people. Yeah, it was an annual uh, even, thing. Yeah. Even, and this is, you know, 30 years after the movie came out you know, people would gather around the TV. You knew it's not like. A Christmas story on Christmas Day where people are like, ah, whatever, it plays all day. You know, it's just kind of a half-assed tradition. This was a very must much... Must-see TV. Must-see TV, exactly. It's like people would look for, they would get their TV guides. Yeah, and, the, and, the, the Nelson rating share, by the way, was like 58%. And you have to think that it's not just her generation, her, you know, our grandparents, too, were impacted by this. I mean, this is something that people have just had us this movie just had a special place in so many people's hearts in, in, a, in a way that when we were prepping for this film my wife and I sat down to watch it and my kids they're you know they're toddlers are three and four they'd never seen this movie but they're kind of at the age where they can begin to understand some elements of it and you know they're used to your frozens your zootopias your moanas you know this toy story those types of 
special effects. Yeah, and the Pixar uh, CGI animated films. They're in a golden age of access on demand for you know top technology. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not just making this up. They were completely engrossed into the film in a way I've never seen with the other animated films. I mean, it absolutely captured their imagination and they and, and held their attention. Uh, it definitely did. Yeah. It, m- maybe not so much the black and white part early on in the film, uh, but once the tornado happens and then they go to Oz. Yeah. From that point on, they were hooked. And not only the influence it has on children and memories and them watching it, but the Halloween costumes. I mean, these are some of the most iconic movie Halloween costumes anywhere you go. Uh, if you see a, a girl in a, a, a blue and white dress, you immediately think of Dorothy. And, of course, the Tin Man and Cowardly Lion and Scarecrow are undeniable. But very popular costumes to this day. I mean, even when you go to Vegas, I mean, the most popular slot machines are Wizard of Oz machines. I mean, it's, those are, it's pretty well known that uh, those are quite popular. <laughs> It's just crazy that that it's that that level of marketing that uh, yeah, I mean are, the oh, swag, I'm... the T-shirts, the tote yeah. bags, the pencil cases. I mean, the Wizard of Oz has every uh, has had every type of marketing product you could think of made for it uh, in some way, and so much so that I would venture to say that there's almost even with like TV and movies, there's almost like an Oz cinematic or pop culture universe. I mean, you've had so many sequels and spinoffs and reimaginings of the movie itself from the land of Oz. Yeah. The spinoff, probably the most successful because a lot of them haven't been, we'll get to those, the, the duds, the most successful spinoff is wicked, which was a Broadway musical, very successful and is being adapted into a 2021 feature film, which if, people don't know wicked it tells the story it's a prequel a perspective from the wicked witch of the west is a uh, 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 point of view yeah it kind of shows when glinda and uh and the wicked witch are they're like roommates in college essentially and it kind of shows her go from um what she is good to, to bad it's a very very highly you know, acclaimed broadway play uh it had Kristen chinowith adina menzel I mean, they still will show up occasionally and perform the songs. It's 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 a yeah. It's well, well, and quite a bit of Tonys too. Uh, so heavily decorated uh, musical. Uh, and you mentioned when it premiered on television in 1956 on CBS. That's really when it became a, a pop culture phenomenon. And funny enough, uh, they start Hollywood started to try to capitalize on that. Uh, there was a TV series animated, The Tales of the Wizard of Oz, in 1961. And A Return to Oz, 1964. Both were animated TV series. Um, The official sequel to The Wizard of Oz, A Journey Back to Oz, 1972, is when it was released. And it starred Judy Garland's daughter, Liza Minnelli. I've never seen that. uh, But it had the blessing, it seems, of that family. And I'm not sure how it was regarded. But at that point... Uh, It didn't do very well. Okay. That's probably why I haven't heard of it. But at that point... From that sequel on, it seemed that, yeah, that's when the train starts. Like, hey, we got to figure out a way to capitalize on it. I would say the next step was, was it back in the 80s when uh, Walt Return Disney? Return to Oz, 1985. Yeah. And this was considered to be very close to the books. It was it was quite a bit darker than uh, any iterations of The Wizard of Oz we had seen. Yeah, well, fuck the books. Because I watched that as a kid, and I was expecting The Wizard of Oz, and I got nightmares. So thanks, Disney, for that. Terrifying. Oh, yeah, my God. The, pretty terrifying. the wheelie guys with the... Yeah. Oh, my jeez. Yeah. Ugh. 
Now, you had some remakes, uh, The Wizard of Oz on Ice in 1996, and then you had some Tom and Jerry movies, uh, animated films, uh, Tom and Jerry and The Wizard of Oz in 2011 on Warner Home Video. So successful, they released a sequel, Tom and Jerry, Back to Oz in 2016. Of course, there was a highly publicized box office feature film released in 2013, a prequel to The Wizard of Oz, Oz the Great and Powerful, starring James Franco and Michelle Williams. I liked that movie, actually. It was it was not bad. Sam Raimi directed it, right? Yeah, it was Sam Raimi, yeah, and uh, kind of showed Franco becoming the wizard and how he became you know, the whole special the special effects to kind of trick uh, you know the, the people and whatnot. So I don't want to spoil anything if you're interested in watching a six year old film, but it's not bad. It's it's worth a watch. Mm, yeah, not great, um, but not bad. Yeah, compared to, at least compared to the other ones, that's not saying much. Um, and the last thing to come out, 2014, Legends of Oz, uh, Dorothy's Return. It was animated, kind of with the CGI animation, the Pixar Disney style, and it was uh, it was a dud. It was not very well received. Some of the all-time lists got to mention with the American Film Institute. The Wizard of Oz is highly revered in cinema history. Uh, number three movie musical of all time. Hmm. The tenth greatest movie of all time out of the top 100. Wow. Ranked number one greatest fantasy film ever. Hmm, well, that's high praise. That's high praise. And Over the Rainbow ranked number one in AFI's 100 greatest songs in movies list. That's a lot of elite rankings to have for one movie. I mean, just various lists that made it in the top five, top ten. That's crazy. We mentioned, you know, the, coming out in cable in the 1950s, it was one of the first films released for home video on Super 8 millimeter during the 70s. Very limited uh, segments of the film were released in clips. Uh, the first VHS movies were released. It was one of the first ones to come out in 1980. Uh, the, one of the first laser discs ever made in 1982, and one of the first DVDs produced in 1997. So this movie has been on the cutting edge, on the forefront of cinema uh, for, uh, for home video as well. Well, I would say it's one of those where as soon as it hits a new medium, people want to do uh, discover it and watch it in that new medium. Because, you know, when we were prepping for this film, I, I, I downloaded it on iTunes. And, of course, it's like in high definition. It's, at least as high definition as a 1939 film can be. And it's yeah, sure. you, you almost take it for granted how crisp the colors look. And it just it looks old. But you're like, oh, OK, yeah, this looks pretty good. And then you go back and watch some clips like on YouTube or some making of documentaries and you're like, holy shit, what is this blurry mess? You know, it's just, you really appreciate it on the new mediums when they come out. So it's, it's one that sells copies. That's why they put it out. People want to see what it looks like in the new technology. Yeah. There's probably been as many home video releases or even more different, uh, home video releases and there were theatrical releases, which I believe you said there were 10 different reissues that's right. uh, or re-releases at some point. Um, but some of the most enduring lessons of the film, uh, you know, Roger Ebert talked about, you know, the learning to, to leave home and grow up and be an adult and, and, and not always getting help and, uh, and, and, and to be a good, good person while you do it. Uh, so that's one of the more enduring lessons from the film and just appreciating what you have, you know, family and home, because at the beginning of the movie, she dreams of a place over the rainbow, wants to go far, far away. And then, of course, she spends the entire movie wanting to go to the very place she bitched about wanting to leave at the beginning. So it just shows that it's always grass is always greener on the other side. Appreciate what you have. Appreciate your family. Absolutely. Well said. And. Todd McCarthy of Variety summed it up best when he said, quote, this is one vintage film that fully lives up to its classic status and should play with outstanding success to contemporary audiences of all ages, unquote. 
That is going to do it for this episode of Replay Value. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you love what you hear, take the time to rate, review, and share with a friend. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday, and we'll see you then. Bye! This has been a Waldo Pickles production.